All right. Praise the Lord. If you can find your seat, we will get started here. Part of learning how to be a Christian is learning how to trust the Spirit of Christ to do the work that only He can do. And a big part of that is just getting out of the way. You know, you could, you could spend the rest of your Christian life just working out how to get out of the way of the Holy Spirit to do what He wants to do. And Al and I were just talking about how, um, how the worship this morning woven together with what Robin was saying just now has woven perfectly into what Al is about to release to us this morning. So do me a favor and reach your hands out to Al. We're going to pray over him. He's, he's a little weak in his body this morning and came down with a cold, but I, I, I trust the spirit of Christ to work through even the weakest of vessels. So father, we thank you for Al Sergal this morning. We thank you for the anointing that's on his life We thank you for the word of God that's going to come through him this morning. And we pray for ourselves this morning for ears to hear what the spirit is saying. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? I kind of uh, got a little something last night. This morning I woke up. You know one of those mornings where you're like, all your clothes are wet and you're cold, but then you're warm. It was just not cool. Um, Took a couple Advil and feeling better. Um, it is interesting to go to our awesome church and it seems like every time I am scheduled to talk between the worship and then it always ends up either Robin or John Mark is doing the kind of, you know, I guess the intermediate role, you know, the, the, the break time. Uh, we don't plan that out and yet they're kind of like talking my message. It's unreal. Like I'm sitting there feeling, uh, scared to death to get up there and talk and at the same time completely confirmed. So uh, today I'm going to be talking about the wheat and the weeds. And for many of you, if you saw me talk the last time, I was quite animated. Um, I may not be quite as animated this morning, but you'll understand why. Uh, so we're going to look at Matthew 13 verses 24 through 30. And this is the parable of the weeds. And I've called this message the wheat and the weeds. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did, where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The service, the servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you were pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into the barn. I want to start this morning by just kind of a different way of doing this. Um, I want to start with a few observations and then place this story within context of what was happening in culture at the time. So we have, so that this parable and what's happening in the parable, just it's a little bit more relevant to us today. Um, first, some real basic observations. The man sowed good seed in his field. He sowed wheat. 
This man is faithful. This man is, he trusts the process. You sow good seeds, you get good results. When he's questioned about, do you want to pull them up? No, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with him, which led me to question, like, is it possible this is not the first time that this has happened for this man? This man, this farmer, shows incredible, incredible patience and trust. And I was, I was, I, this man's reaction had a lot of wisdom. The process of planting seeds, um, the art of agriculture, being a farmer, it's, it's like any art form. And if you want to read more about that from a prophetic voice, that's, is, you should read some Wendell Berry. Um, I won't go there this morning. But the art of agriculture, like any art form, like life, you start with a vision and a dream, and you get excited, and then you do the work. And in faith, you get up daily, and you do the work, and you do the work, and you do the work. And along the way, you're going to fight those battles. You're going to have that daily resistance that, that you have to keep going, because honestly, you don't see anything growing yet. But you keep working anyway, and then you wait, and you wait. And after some time of working and waiting, you start to see some small sprouts or results coming from your work. But it doesn't look like what you thought it would look like. Then what do you do? What do you do when there is wheat and weeds? You expected wheat. You had a vision for how things would be. What do you do? You scrap it? You just start pulling the weeds out? I mean, if I can be honest, my reaction would be to just pull the weeds out and just get it over with. Um, I don't have a lot of experience. I grew up in a really small rural farming town in the northwest corner of Missouri. It was mostly soybeans and stuff. So I was around farmers, but I don't really know much about it. But Google's really helpful. And uh, I noticed that uh, the process of wheat going from being planted to being harvested is about four to five months. So when we see in the scriptures when the wheat sprouted, I mean, have any of you seen sprouts? Have any of you eaten sprouts? Am I the only vegan here? Yeah, I don't even, I'm vegan and I don't even like sprouts. I mean, you know, you see the bean sprouted salad. I mean, my point is they're the smallest little thing. And, and you know, I, I'm not exactly sure what I'm eating. It's not the taste. It's like grass. It really is. If you ever are curious, I'm just letting you know. Just pass. Um, not my favorite thing to do. I know they're good for me, Don, but I can't do it. Uh, yeah, so they're really small. And it's really hard, my point with all of that is not to joke around too much, but to let you know that they're really small and it's very hard to tell the difference. And because it's early in the stages, and I think that's part of the message of this parable is that we're very early in some, the stages of things. It's too early for us to make any judgment. The shortest distance between a human and truth is a story. And this story, this parable, is no different. Um, Up to this point in Matthew, particularly in Matthew 12, Jesus has had several, several encounters with the Pharisees. Words have been spoken to him. Words have been spoken about him. And in the scriptures, and I learned this from N.T. Wright, there is this pattern 
of event and explanation. We see something happen, an event with Jesus, and then Jesus explains it. If you have a red-letter Bible, it's pretty easy because it's like there's a section that's black with a few little red letters, and then it hits a chapter where it's like all red, okay? So chapter 12 of Matthew is kind of black letters, and then you hit 13, and it's all red because Jesus begins to explain what has been happening. For context... I want you to keep this in mind this morning as we continue. Jesus is up against something even more powerful than the religious leaders or the political powers of his day. Jesus is up against a cultural expectation and a cultural mindset. Jesus was often speaking to people who had been taught that the coming kingdom would look a certain way and that the coming Messiah would look a certain way. The coming kingdom looked more like a Jewish version of the Roman Empire. And the coming Messiah looked more like a victorious military leader. These were cultural expectations that had been deeply planted in the psyche of the people Jesus was speaking to. Even his own disciples. If you look back at Matthew 12 and you kind of get some context of what's happened before Jesus kind of starts saying the kingdom is like, which is the majority of Matthew 13... You know, you know, the Pharisees gave him a hard time because the, the disciples were eating on the Sabbath. And then Jesus heals a person and the Pharisees are like, well, it must be that he hangs with Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he would be able to, he, you know, heal somebody. And then if that's not enough, the Pharisees are like, well, show us a sign so we can believe in you. It's like they test him after he's done all this stuff. Jesus is do, And the thing is, Jesus was doing and saying things that put into question just about everything the Jews at the time understood about God, God's kingdom, and the coming Messiah. And to a certain point, you look at Matthew 12, verses 46 and 47, and even Jesus' family comes around. It's almost like a family intervention. Um, I, I read it, and you know, it's just nuts. It's like Jesus says the most cryptic thing. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? I mean, if you were Jesus' mom and his brothers, you'd be like, okay, he's crazy. They really were. I think this was at a place where even his family was beginning to question, like, is he, is he right of mind? Is he sane of mind? Matthew 13 is more or less an explanation of the events that have happened prior to this point. The kingdom that Jesus is initiating is not the kingdom they were expecting. It is way more mysterious and subvert than any reference the people of Jesus' day would have or could have had. They just didn't have a context for it. And the way in which Jesus describes this kingdom has to match the very nature of the kingdom. That's why he speaks in parables. Parables are mysterious. Parables are subvert. Every time I read this parable, I was getting something else out of it. I just arrived at what I thought was going to be the most useful thing for today. Parables have layers of meaning that depending on the day, the time, the seasons of your life, they will speak to you and give you a vision of an alternative way to live and an alternative way to be. A little more context. Stay with me. In the ancient world, many of the metaphors for the spiritual life were agricultural because people at the time of Jesus lived in an agricultural setting. Planting seeds, harvesting, watering 
winter, spring, summer, fall. These were active parts of existence to the majority of the people that Jesus spoke to and interacted with. For our ancestors in agricultural settings, they were deeply attuned to how the very source of their food came from the earth and that the earth had its own timetable. The work and the expectation you have when you're planting. Are there any gardeners in here? Anybody just love to plant flowers or do that? I don't have a green thumb at all, but you'll understand this. The work and expectation of you when you plant the seeds and the quiet and the patience that is necessary after planting. Because when the seed is buried, it just seems like there's nothing happening. People of this time were keenly in tune with doing the work, but also having the patience, hope, and trust to wait. Somehow, even though their lives, these Jews, their lives were immersed in agriculture, the power of their expectations was blinding them. And that's why Jesus quotes Isaiah in Matthew 13 when he says, Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's hearts have been calloused. They they, They hardly hear with their ears. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus' listeners, Jesus's listeners, because they relied so much on the earth to provide their food, they really had no choice but to receive what they were given from the earth. When it rains, it rains. When it's dry, it's dry. When it's windy, it's windy. When it's freezing cold, it's freezing cold. I mean, this spring has been more of a legitimate spring. Honestly, if you have, I mean, usually we, and Charlotte, it's like winter, it's like winter, summer. Like we just skip, we go from like really awesome fifties and sixties to 100 degrees. Um, and I really, I've, I've kind of been proud of the weather, honestly. Um, you know, um, because it feels really awkward. The transition from season to season is awkward and, um, you really can't do anything about it, right? Ultimately you just receive what it is. And, um, these folks had to simply trust and receive. And again, I, I can't reiterate enough that the people of Jesus's time had cultural expectations about this coming kingdom and coming Messiah that were deeply, deeply planted in them. And these expectations were not, not they weren't, they were not being met in Jesus, whom many did believe was the Messiah they had been waiting for to bring about the kingdom they had been hoping for. Both Jesus and the kingdom he was describing did not meet their expectations. And honestly, who can blame them? I mean, when you from your very birth have been told, when you've been at the synagogue, expect this. And the interpretation of the future is this. And your ideas about how things are going to turn out, they just get flipped on you. When you build your whole life around a certain expectation, a future or idea, you, be, you really you begin, begin to believe in it so much that those expectations can possibly become a new reality that's not reality at all. You miss reality. That is a very hard thing to change. You expect that things will happen a certain way, and they aren't. Tougher still, expectations, if not put in check, can lead to entitlement. Entitlement can, can lead to holding on to something so tight that you'll do anything to protect it. 
And self-protection, self-preservation, friends, those are heavy, heavy principalities to try and get rid of. Jesus had become an irritation. Might I say he might have become the weed, this eternal seed, as Paul called it. Is it possible that he was the weed? Jesus was not meeting their expectations. I, I can relate to this a little. And uh, if I get weepy, you'll understand. Um, this is directly related to Robin's comment about anxiety earlier. And um, I've, I've been following Jesus now for 15 years. I can only say that I met, I met him on a car ride home uh, from a gig. And uh, it's never been the same since. The first thing that he dealt with me on was um, entitlement. My, my background is I, I did an undergraduate degree and a master's degree in music performance. I just studied how to play that instrument really well. Um, I had no backup plan. Um, I had no one tell me, hey, as a musician, it might be a good idea to have another revenue source. Um, I came from a very small town where I was the drummer that played at the pep rally and I, I got a full ride to go to this school in Florida and, um, slowly but surely I rose to the top of this little school. It was Florida state and I, I became a big fish in a little pond in two different places. And so along the way I met my wife, Nada, and many of you may or may not know, but we dated long distance while I was in Florida. She was here in Charlotte and we dated long distance for four years. And so that, the first couple years of marriage, um, you know, it was interesting, having not really been in the same city with somebody. Um, and I began, and I think one or two years into our marriage, I started to have these anxiety attacks where this inner rage would just come out of me. Um, to the degree, friends, that I, it was like an out-of-body experience, and I saw myself saying things to my wife that no man should say to his wife, blaming her for things that weren't her fault. And you have to understand how hard this hurts me because I'm a man who believes that words become flesh and dwell among us. Words create things. Words initiate things. You have more power than you understand. Nada and I are just starting to deal with this now and have conversations about this now. And um, so immediately after encountering what I can only describe as Jesus, <laughs> I, he wants to deal with that. And he starts showing me that I had expectations about my life because I grew up where my dad came home at 5.30 from working. He was a band director he whistle, and it was like, man, if I was out in the neighborhood and I heard his whistle, it was dinner time, and it was almost every day at the same time. So my upbringing, this expectation of being a dad and being married, I had this expectation that being a drummer and a musician was going to be a normal life, that you could play music and have a family and a home, and things would be normal. And for those of you who are artists, it's just not like that. I mean... NATO works during the day and entertainment happens in the evening, guys. Like, I don't know where my head was at. And God started to unfold that my expectations had created in me an entitlement. I felt like the world owed me this. 
you, you owe me. I should be able to pay my bills and take care of my wife and my family because I did this, this, and this. And all along, the Lord just began to walk me through and go like, dude, I don't know what you were thinking, but you know, your dad was a teacher. And that happens from like eight o'clock to five. And when you play drums in a band, that happens at like, you know, anywhere from 6 p.m. on. And on top of that, you're moving to Charlotte. It's not like the Mecca of music, you know? I love it. I've been here 20 years in the, the artistic scene. Guys, let me just tell you, it's starting. Just watch. It's been going. I think I want that. The reason I say this is that anxiety. Hmm. Some of you may not want to hear this, but thank God for those anxiety attacks because I would have never known. I would have never gotten back to knowing that I had, I had created this reality of my expectations and decided that I was, I was entitled to that. And I would have never gotten there. I would have never seen that healing would come from that. It's not going to be the same for everybody. But what I've realized is we really don't know where healing's going to come from. It does come from the Lord, but we don't know where it's going to come from. And we really don't know how prayers are going to be answered. And we're really not the best judges of whether something in our life is wheat or a weed. I've one of my best friends, and many of you know him, um, and I'm not going to say his name. He's like best friend. I always call him and bounce my ideas off of him and let him riff. And I can only take in about 10% of it because he's a deep well. And uh, I told him about what I was going to teach on. and It did not include that story. I mean, that's not a story. It's my life. It's what I'm dealing with right now. Um, I didn't tell him about that. I told him where I was going to go with this message and he has this beautiful property and there's trees and flowers and, oh man, it's beautiful. When the weather's nice, because it's Wisconsin, when the weather's nice, it's gorgeous. It's like today. It's just epic. You know, you're like, man, it's so clear that my, even with my glasses, it's, it's, it's freaking me out. It's like 5, 10K, whatever that is in video terms. You have to help me out, Blake. You know, um, so he has this beautiful property, and Aspens are indigenous to this area. They're native to that area, and he's been having problems. He's telling me he's been having problems with buckthorn. Now, buckthorn, again, I know none of this, but Google's great. Um, buckthorn is an exotic plant species that can take over a plot of land, squeezing out the native plants. So if you've got Aspens, it's going to squeeze out Aspens. Can everybody hear the kids? It's pretty awesome from here. It's pretty awesome. So the problem with buckthorn is you can't tell the difference between aspens and buckthorn. And my friend was like, I can't. So I hired a master gardener. And the master gardener comes over and takes care of the problem immediately, kind of removes the buckthorn and all that. And this is always how it happens, guys. Just pay attention when people come over to your house. So the master gardener comes over, clears it all up. And before he leaves, he says to my buddy, he says, you know, A weed is simply a decision you make. And your garden is based on what you want in that particular garden. (laughs) I'll just leave that one there. Now, I'm not saying, let me just say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that they're not, I'm not saying that they're not bad things. I'm not saying that there's not evil. 
I'm not saying that there aren't weeds, but it's only a master gardener that can remind us that the weed is something you've decided you don't want there. The farmer in this parable was comfortable with this, with his decision. I know this is going to sound crazy, but I, I thank God for those anxiety attacks because early on in my marriage, I, I would have never known how deeply planted the seeds of expectation were, that the, the entitlement that was sprouting up. Um, and had that garden of entitlement continued to grow, I wouldn't be able to see the way I see today. I wouldn't be able to appreciate the way I appreciate today. I, I can't say it enough. I am not a good judge of wheat or weeds. I'm not a good judge, period. I need to take the energy. I'm serious. I need to take we. I need to take. I'm just putting on me because I know you guys are nothing like this. I need to take the energy that I put into judgment, judging myself, judging my situation, judging my family, judging other people. I need to take that energy and just put it in trust and hope. Trust and hope is what waters your garden. It's what waters your heart. Trust is what allowed me to see my anxiety as a gift only because the master gardener, this Jesus that's real and tangible, he revealed it to me. That's where he started. This friend that we sing about, this, this guy that we say, I love you. I was, our, I was a resounding message this morning is Jesus, I love you. I love you, Jesus, because you started there with me. We need to ask him to help us with the wheat and weeds in our garden. If we get too caught up with judging what is wheat and what is weeds, we have the potential to stop planting seeds altogether because of fear. No seeds, no wheat. No seeds, no fruit. What happens when you think you've planted good seeds and you find out the evil one has planted seeds too? What happens when your dreams and that vision you had for your life all of a sudden isn't turning out the way you expected it. Again, it's not to say that there are not weeds or bad things in our world that need to be rooted out. But guys, I needed, and I'm still dealing with it today, I needed entitlement pulled out of my heart because I do not need anxiety. And neither do you. And I'm telling you that anxiety has a root. Left up to me without the master gardener, I I can't say it enough. I would never have seen that the healing of my heart from entitlement would come from something that, to be honest, I've never shared publicly that I had those anxiety attacks in the late 90s. I I have never shared publicly that I was verbally abusive to my wife. That's Why would I share that? Except for the grace and peace of Christ. There's no, there, if we don't believe that death brings new life, there's no reason for me to be this vulnerable. We have, there's a portion of this, and I'm, I'm off my notes, which might be good, but Matthew was always, and, and historians have said that the book of Matthew, Matthew was always kind of keen to like, really like to divide things up. He liked to make it here, you know, you're over here or here. So there is an aspect of, of, of judgment that we feel in the end of this passage, right? We're like, hey, just bundle those and do this. But we have the promise that Jesus' judgment 
is the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus, his judgment is the hope of the world. And why do I say that? And why did I say it twice? Because, oh man, because Jesus knows everything about you. He knew, you've heard all this before. It's just you don't believe it. He knew you before you were in your mother's womb. He knows every hair on your head, even if they're gone. (laughs) And again, you've, you've heard all these things before, but you just haven't received them. Imagine this. Imagine this. What if judgment day looked like this? What if judgment day looks like this? Jesus says to you, I know what he or she or they did to you. I I also know what you did to them. I know how you felt. I know how they felt. I know what happened when they went home and went to their room. I know the fight they got in with their friends because you messed them up so hard. And I know how you felt. I know how it hurt you. Why don't we forgive them together? Take my hands and let's forgive them together. Enter my kingdom. Enter my garden. Where both wheat and weeds coexist together. What if that's what it looks like? That's the hope of the world. Is that Jesus knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows everything that you've gone through. And the hope of the world is that he did see, he knows everything about you. Wheat and weeds. I want to close with just reading, reading a passage from the Apostle Paul. And I was reading this and just began to read it over myself. And I felt like, if anything, it might be a catalyst for us to pray for people. Um, I mean, there's no, there's a reason why our senior pastor was talking about anxiety in the break time, you know. So there might be something we need to deal with this morning. And what I would say is, um, I'm going to read this. And I just, I don't want it on the screen because if you're, I want you to be in a posture of just receiving this. The thing that blows my mind about Paul, and I know this sounds so simple, but Paul was figuring this thing out, guys. (laughs) He met Jesus on a road, and he was blinded. And he's writing these letters to the church, and you know the guy's going like, they don't even listen to me. They want to listen to all these other speakers. They don't want to listen to me. I mean, Paul was the one true, he was such a true father. And that that the... (laughs) And so when I read his words, I, I, re, I just, I think about the fact that he is creating something that had never been created before and, and initiating ideas about Christ that had never been thought before. And sometimes when we read the, the book, the Bible, we read it like a Chinese food menu. We don't read it like, we don't read it like people were like, I wonder if I should write this down. Like, were they nervous or like, I heard this from the Lord, you know? I mean, Anyway, you get my point. So I, I'm going to read this over you, and I just want you to close your eyes and, and take these words in, and I'm going to take my time with it. 
And then maybe that will, I just pray the Lord that it'll move us to a place where maybe some people can walk out changed this morning. Consider, brothers and sisters, will you please consider that your present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in you and to you. For creation waits. It Creation is waiting in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, to be free of anxiety, to be free of depression, to be revealed. That's you. Creation is waiting for you. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This is a promise to you. God is promising you that. Liberation from bondage. Freedom. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and daughtership, our redemption. For in this hope, you were saved. But hope that is seen is not is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have and we wait for it patiently, like a farmer, like a master gardener, we will receive it. In the same way, the Spirit will help you in your weakness. The Spirit will help you in your weakness. If you reach out to the Spirit, the Spirit will help you in your weakness. Take that in. The Spirit will help you in your weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. That's a promise. There's an intercession going on for you in the heavenly right now. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love them, who have been called according to a purpose. That's you. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against us? Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one. No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or good seeds or bad seeds or wheat or weeds? No, in all things, we are more. You are more than a conqueror in him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor any else, anything else in all creation will be able to separate you, separate us 
from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Spirit help us helps us in our weakness. It's in your weakest point that you're strong. The Spirit is going to help you in your weakness. What is that weakness? What I know. I, let's just stay in that. Give that to Jesus now. What is that weakness? What? What is re- what's messing with you right now? What is making you feel less than human? What's me- making you feel less than who you are called to be? You feel it inside of you. You feel, I'm called to be something more than this. I feel it. I feel it groaning inside of me. I feel creation groaning inside of me. This thing that God has planted inside of you, you feel it and something is in the way. And the spirit is here to help you in your weakness in your weakness, he wants to be strong. It's interesting when Al talks about um, anxiety attacks. How many people here have had them? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, they're terrible. You you feel like you're falling into a hole and you'll never hit bottom and you're out of control and yet you're sitting there driving down the highway. I can remember having them years ago back before cell phones and I was a traveling salesman and I was coming from Columbia to Charlotte and I was looking for a phone booth to call and ask my wife to come pick me up because I was having one of those anxiety attacks. And I can remember, uh, you know, I thought I was going to die. I don't mean during them. I mean during that whole season. I did not know if I was going to live through what was going on. Now, the backstory was Donna and I had been eight years in a Christian community where we would... Um, pay our bills and give the rest of the money into the church because we were going to be the kingdom and it fell apart. And we had given for years everything we had, no savings, nothing. And when I left, I had to borrow money from my mother to rent a house that had roaches in it. I mean, that was, that was where we were. And that's when these panic attacks began and... Um, but just, just like Al said, and my personal opinion is the panic attacks are associated with issues we haven't completely dealt with. I don't believe it's just that the devil jumps you and makes you feel that way. I think it's a consequence, not so much a cause, but a consequence. And I can remember, and I'll tell you some of the things the Lord showed me. I think it's going to help you, but the Lord came to me one day, and he said, what are you afraid of? 
And I said, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my mind. And, and the, <laughs> the Lord said, I'm not going to let you. And that was a pretty big relief because I realized I wasn't the only one in charge of my mind at that point, which, yeah, may be humorous, but it was reality for me. And that began to give me some relief. But then I began to realize I had many of the same issues that Al talked about. We had given up everything. Listen, my mother and father literally thought I had lost my mind. I've had that Jesus family moment. My mother has told my dad, go pick him up. He's crazy. And it was directly related to my devotion and my commitment to Jesus, not some weird other thing. So I lost my family. In college, I lost my friends. All because I wanted to go the whole way with Jesus. And then after eight or nine years of total devotion into this vision we had of the kingdom, it collapsed and it fell apart. And I was heartbroken. And I was entitled to for things to have worked better than that, really. I mean, I had done the work. I had gone the distance. I had paid the price. The only problem is the things Jesus has for us, you can't pay for that way. You can't pay that way. And then I realized I had some very deep-seated resentments. I realized I had bitterness against people because of how things worked. And I was pretty mad at the Lord, too, because he hadn't upheld his end of the bargain. You know, all of us really think God's an associate of ours. (laughs) Come on. I talk about people that think they're smarter than God, and people say, well, nobody thinks they're smarter than God. And I said, just watch them. <laughs> just look at the arguments they have with them. That ought to tell you something. The disagreements they have with even the Bible to me, honestly. I'm at the point and have been for years. I just believe the Bible. Well, what about this, that, and the other? I don't care. I don't get it all, but I know I'm in. This is who I am. The Bible. Anyway. Disappointment, entitlement, a misunderstood past, unforgiveness. Those are issues I think all of us need to not search yourself. Ask the Lord about. Don't go soul searching. That doesn't work that well. But let the Lord just help you, right? Let him speak. Disappointment. How many of you are disappointed? Yeah. Tell the truth. That's step one. How many of you are disappointed in life? Just want you to stand up. Let's go and give it to you. Disappointed. You didn't get what you bargained for. How many of you are mad at people that didn't treat you right? Yeah, I knew I'd get some more there. Come on. Well, why are you standing? Well, I ask you to, number one. But number two, it's an opportunity to acknowledge to the Lord, Lord, I'm giving this to you. That's where you start. That's where you start. He wants... What would it be like to be in a healthy church? That's my vision for. <laughs> but look at all of us unhealthy people. I'm standing up too, ladies and gentlemen. I'm still dealing with some issues. But here's what we're saying. We're saying, Lord, here we are. We're giving this to you. We have issues. How many have issues? We have issues. 
but we're going to face them. We're going to give them to you. And we're going to release these things to you right now. Let's say that, Lord, we just give these things to you right now. Our entitlements, our disappointments. I had a strange vision. I saw the Scandinavian countries, and I felt like the Lord said there's like a frustrated person in here with a call to missions. Anybody a frustrated missionary to Scandinavia? You're Scandinavian. Well, the Lord just wants to touch you and heal you and release you from any form of whatever, however that messes you up. The Lord wants no one to be messed up. Isn't that great news? I release a don't be messed up anointing from the Lord. Let that come. How does that work? Who knows? Let that come. Let the love of God, let the wisdom of God Put your trust in him again, not in your vision, not in your concepts, not in your ideas, not even in your dreams, in a person, in a person. In Jesus' name, we're just going to pray this. Okay? Okay, amen? Amen? Okay. Take a deep breath. That's always a good thing to do. Take... How many of you still feel a little tense in your chest? Come on, tell the truth. I know how this works. Yeah, there you are. Okay. Just receive peace. I told folks earlier, I said, do you know why Paul used to write in his letters to the church, grace and peace, grace and peace be unto you? It's because he expected them to receive grace and peace through his words. So when I say grace and peace to you, I'm not making some weird benediction. I'm speaking something that can impart what the words describe. Grace and peace be unto you now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen, amen. Great word, Al. Thank you so much.